0: All right, we're going to be talking about some pretty weighty stuff this morning. My hope is that this would be, um, in some ways, it it will be heavy, it will be sober, but my hope is ultimately it will be hopeful uh, that you will leave with a real sense of the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, if If you've been a part of our church or you've been with us on Sunday mornings, you know that we're going through the book of Hebrews. In this past Sunday, uh, our senior pastor, Mark Davis, uh, preached a sermon out of one verse. I love how he does that. Uh, Just one verse, and it was a great sermon on temptation. And that verse is there on your sheet. It's the very first verse you see. It's Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, verse 18. The author of Hebrews writes, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those when being tempted. And this morning, I just want us to ask the question, how? How does that work? How does Jesus, the son of God who is supreme over all things, how does he help us, a bunch of lowly human beings, how does he help us in the midst of temptation? And what does it look like to equip ourselves with the help of Christ each and every day? And so to look at this, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus, he himself was tempted. To look at this, we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. It's in Matthew chapter four. It's there on your sheet. In Matthew four, we're given this story and it's an an amazing story if you think about it about the Holy Spirit leading Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness. Right there, I mean, we should (laughs) be very confused and we could just talk about that the rest of the morning. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness. But why? I think the answer to that question is Hebrews 2, verse 18. Why did the Holy Spirit lead Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness? So that he would be tempted like us so that he would suffer when tempted, so that he could help us in the midst of our temptation. This morning, we're going to look at just how Satan tries to tempt us as human beings. Particularly, we're going to look at how Satan tries to tempt us as men. But this is not going to be just a talk about temptation. This is really a talk about the help of Christ. How does Christ help us in the midst of temptation? The last thing I'll say by way of introduction, as I thought about how to set this up, how to make it practical... How do we really talk about this as men? I felt like the Lord, the Holy Spirit, was leading me to a particular topic, a category of temptation that I felt like we should talk about, but I didn't want to do it. I feel like we have to because I think this is a great example of what Satan tries to do when he tempts us. And so this morning, although this isn't the only temptation we face as men, it's certainly a big one, we're going to talk about sexual temptation. Now, just as this isn't a talk about temptation, it's also not a talk about sex. This is really a talk about how Jesus is our help. But if we're going to be honest, if we're going to really begin to wrestle with how is Jesus our help, I think we need to be practical. And the reality as men, every single one of us faces temptation every single day at some level from some kind of input, some kind of outside or maybe inside desire to be tempted sexually. The question is, we should ask ourselves, is what do we do with that? And how is Jesus our help in the midst of temptation? So, we're gonna look at this in three ways three ways that Jesus is our help. The first way that I want you to think about this is that Christ is our identity, okay? Christ is our identity. Why does that matter when we are being tempted? I want you to look at verse 3. Matthew 4, verse 3. We're told that the tempter came. Notice Satan is given a title here. He has many titles throughout the Bible. We'll talk about some of those this morning. One of those is Tempter. Temptation comes from the devil. But what the devil does is he's not the originator, typically, of the things we're being tempted with. What we'll see this morning is typically what the devil is doing. He's taking things created by God and he's using them to tempt us. (laughs) Oftentimes, he's actually taking good things that God has created. Things that are gifts to us and he's distorting them. He is twisting them and he is using them against the people of God. We see that here. In Matthew chapter four, we certainly see that when we are facing sexual temptation. Let me show you what what I mean. So the tempter, it says, uh, came to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, there's a big word there that I want you to focus on. It's the word if. What is the tempter doing? What is Satan? What's his strategy in tempting Jesus? He 's not just saying, "Hey, Jesus, um, turn these stones to bread that's that 's not the temptation. What I want you to notice is at the heart of every temptation there 's a deeper thing going on. Uh, yes, when we think about sexual temptation, there's obviously a lot that 's on the surface, but if we don 't realize that there's something going on underneath, we are woefully ill equipped there's something going deep here where what, what the tempter is doing, what Satan is doing as he comes to Jesus, if you are the son of God, what's he doing? He's questioning the identity of Jesus. He's questioning Jesus. He's saying, you can't be the son of God. That can't be who you are. Wait, Jesus, you're in the desert. Oh, Jesus, are you hungry? How could the son of God ever be hungry? There's no way that you are the son of God if you find yourself hungry in the midst of desert, if you are the son of God. The first strategy that I want you to consider, what does Satan use to tempt us is shame. The devil uses shame. He causes us to question our worth, our value, our dignity. Here the devil is shaming Jesus if you are the son of God, when we give in to temptation, when we recognize that we are the sinners, that we, we, we really are. And we have to be honest about that. One of the great tricks that Satan uses is to use that, um, that sin to shame us. Shame is powerful. Shame causes us to hide, it causes us to hide from one another as men, it causes us to hide from God. And as I think about, look, we, we hide all kinds of uh, sin. We, it will cause us to hide. But you think about sexual sin, there's nothing quite like sexual sin that causes us to hide, where we feel deep shame over what we have done. And yet every one of us in this room, as men, are broken sexually somehow. Every single one of us has given into temptation somehow, some way. I know that because of the standard that Jesus gives us in the Bible. That if you even look lustfully, right? If you even gaze lustfully, that you are committing adultery. Every one of us is guilty. The question is what do you do with your guilt? The devil wants you to keep your guilt to yourself, he wants you to hide. He wants you to hide from one another. He wants you to hide from the people of God. He wants you to hide from a church. He wants you to hide from God himself. I don't know if you remember this. There was a, um, a news story that broke several years ago about a website called Ashley Madison. Do you remember this website? Uh, it was a, a tragic thing. Uh, it was a website that was designed to um, facilitate adulterous relationships that you would become a user, you would log in and you would be connected to other people who also want to have adulterous relationships. And this website was hacked. Okay. So hackers went in and got all the data and released the names of all of the users of this website and then used that information against them professionally. Okay. Now, why is that even something they're able to do? Not technically, I mean, why would that be such a a dangerous thing? Why would that be so scary? Why could they coerce people after getting that information to use that against their professional careers? Shame, because shame is so powerful. This website was built on anonymity to keep sinful things in the dark. Now they had very, very wrong motives, but they exposed it And it was a huge story as it broke, huge because people were beginning to be exposed and they did not want to be exposed and they were being shamed. Just yesterday, I was reminded of this story and heard of part of the fallout that I had never heard before. There's a story in the Washington Post about a pastor, a seminary professor, who was one of those men on the website. And when he learned that this data breach had happened, that his name was on the list, that he had been exposed, a pastor and a seminary professor, he was overcome with shame to the point that he took his own life. And you think, well, how, this is a pastor, this is a seminary professor, like how could he do that? The shame was so crippling. Brothers, it's a sobering warning to recognize the power of shame, that when we face temptation and we think, I have to do this alone because nobody can know just how powerful this temptation is over me, that is when we are most vulnerable. So what do you do with shame? The first thing that you do is you have to admit that you really are a sinner. I know that seems backwards, (laughs) But the antidote to shame is not to be um, unashamed and say, oh, okay, well, uh, don't worry about it. (laughs) It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. So the first thing to do is to admit, "I, I really am a sinner. You are, and so am I. But there's a difference between shame and conviction, okay? There's a difference between shame and conviction. To be shamed over your sin is to say, I've got to make myself better before I can come before God. To be shamed over your sin is to hide yourself from other people. To have conviction over your sin, to confess your sin, is to say, I am broken and I am needy. And rather than running away from God, I'm bringing my sin to God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm bringing my sin to God. The only way you can do that is to recognize the opposite of shame is not being unashamed, not being bold in your sin, but I heard this in a sermon at uh, our denominational meeting last Friday and I thought it was a great definition. The opposite of shame is not being unashamed. The opposite of shame is worth. It's recognizing that you have worth. That if you are in Christ, you have worth. You've been made in the image of God and you are his son. So as the tempter questions you, just as he questioned Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, prove yourself. If you are the Son of God, then clean yourself up. If you are the Son of God, then you can stop this sin on your own. If you are the Son of God, don't tell anybody. Make sure that you look the part before you talk to other people. If you are the Son of God, you better be perfect before you set foot in a church. Those are all lies from the devil. No, you need to know this that if you are in Christ, you are the Son of God, you have worth. And you can bring your sin before the foot of the cross. I want you to hear these words. This is Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul says, If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want those words to sink into you this morning. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in the death and resurrection of uh, Jesus for your salvation, that means you are not condemned. <laughs> you should have no shame. You should be convicted. And you should often, with great power and great worth and great dignity as sons of God, bring your sin to the cross knowing that you have been forgiven. Christ is our identity, He has made us sons. He has made us worthy, worthy of his death and worthy of his resurrection. Not because of us, but because of him, because what he has done for us. The second thing how is Jesus our help in the midst of temptation? Not only is he um, our identity, Christ is our truth. Christ is our truth. Uh, the name Satan, I don't know if you know this, the name Satan in Hebrew literally means accuser. Literally means accuser. So as Satan is accusing, right? Accusing us, calling our identities in question, the name devil means liar. It means liar. He's a liar. That's what he does. That's one of his um, titles. He's a slanderer. He's a liar. The Bible calls him the father of lies. And what Satan does when he tempts us is he's often taking the good things of God and he's lying about them. He's twisting them. And we see that here in Matthew chapter four. I want you to look with me at verse five. At verse five, it says, then the devil took Jesus to the holy city. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. If you are the son of God. So there he is again, calling Jesus' identity into question. But now notice what he does. In your Bibles and they're on your sheet, you'll notice that this is in quotations. This is in quotations. Not just what he says, but what he's quoting. Do you see that? He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. It is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is Satan speaking to Jesus. Anyone want to take a guess what Satan thinks about quoting to Jesus? What's he doing? Satan's quoting the Bible. Satan knows the truth of God. He's quoting the Bible, he's quoting Psalm 91. He's taking something good from God and he's twisting it and is using it to tempt Jesus. He's a liar and he twists the goodness and promise of God every single day. That is at the heart of every temptation that we face. Now, of course, this isn't just sexual sin. This could be any kind of temptation that we face. The temptation to lie about our, um, our work, right? To fudge numbers, to try to get ahead, to, to, to twist things, to put somebody down. To all of these things underneath it is at its heart. It's because Satan is causing us to question the goodness and promise of God. Well, God I know it says that God is a provider, that he's going to take care of me, but I haven't seen that in my life, and and so now I'm tempted to take matters into my own hands, right? Maybe that describes some of you this morning. You've been spending months, if not years, taking your own life, at least you think you are, into your own hands because you question the promise of God's goodness, of his provision, of his care for you. And underneath that, you'll see a a wake of temptation, right? A wake of even giving into that temptation and sinning, trying to manipulate and control and work your way into whatever your vision of success is. Do you see how he works? It's not just putting somebody down at work or fudging the numbers or lying about a deal. Underneath that... The tempter, the accuser, the liar has caused you to question the goodness and provision of God. The same thing actually could be said of sex, believe it or not. Who created sex? God. Sometimes it's almost hard to believe because of the culture that we live in. Do you see how much the liar has gotten his way in our culture? God created sex. Now, is there anything that God made that isn't good? No. So God made sex. It's good. It's actually a good thing. Now, what did he make sex for? Well, he made it for marriage. Why? Why? Was that just an old and archaic thing? Well, that's what the devil would want you to think. (laughs) This old fashioned way that we did things back in the fifties. No, God created sex for marriage because marriage is a picture of the gospel. And the way that he's called us to be united as husband and wife, we are united to Jesus Christ. In the same way that Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride, the same way that we have a faithful husband, that even when we are adulterous and we cheat on him every day with other gods, we are called to be married as as husband and wife. And in the context of marriage, he's given us sex to be covenant renewal, to be covenant glue, to be a picture of the unity and oneness that we are called to in marriage. But that's not the only reason why he has called sex for marriage. The other, and I say this to our premarital class all the time: Do you do you know what sex um, makes? It's biology 101. It makes babies. Somehow we've totally forgotten that as a culture. Why? Is that an accident? No, because Satan's a liar. He's a twister. He's a deceiver. He's completely separated the act of sex from what we all know, whether we believe in God or not, biologically, it makes babies. Now, theologically, I want you to think about that for a second. A human being is made in the image of God. It's the only thing out of all his creations made in the image of God, which means he has appointed to us and given us the role of participating in his creating and bearing his image in the world. How unbelievable is that? How sacred and holy should sex be? And these little children, these little image bearers, he is appointed to be raised in a home where there's a mommy and a daddy, where there's people who are called to covenantly love one another so they would covenantly love their children. He's also made sex for our joy, for our, our pleasure, right? Sex is a good thing in the context of marriage, the liar, the deceiver, the evil one has twisted and disordered that. He has separated sex from procreation. (laughs) And he said, no, sex is not for a covenant, not for marriage. No, no, that's old, that's archaic, that's outdated. And the deceiver, the liar begins to twist it. He begins to convince us that Sex in of itself is just this kind of biological thing that we just feel without recognizing that there are deep emotional and covenantal attachments to it. What I want you to see, brothers, this is what Satan does. He takes the good things of God and he so disorders them in our hearts and minds that we begin to believe a lie over the truth and promise of God. How do we combat that? How do we combat that? We have to recognize that Christ is our truth. That Christ is our truth. Here's Satan in the wilderness tempting Jesus, quoting Psalm 91 to him, trying to use the goodness and promise of God against him. How does Jesus respond? If Satan's gonna use scripture against Jesus, what do you think Jesus answers right back? Scripture. Scripture. He responds and says, As it is written, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. If there's any argument for knowing your Bibles, it's not so you can beat somebody else in Bible drills or prove that you know lots of neat Bible facts. It's that we have been given a weapon against temptation. We studied uh, the book of Ephesians uh, this past semester, I believe in the spring, feels like light years ago. And we talked about the armor of God, the only of the armor of God in Ephesians 6, the only weapon we're given. We're given a helmet of salvation, right? And a breastplate of righteousness. We're given these things. The the only weapon, we're given the sword of the Spirit, right? The very word of God. To have the word of God stored up in your heart so that when you're facing temptation, you are quoting scripture not only to yourself, but to the liar, and you're rehearsing the promise and goodness of God to yourself. You're rehearsing the goodness and promise of God to the liar, and saying, "I don't, I don't believe you, Satan." You're questioning the authority of God, just as you did in the, in the in the garden, right? Did God really say? And you're saying, "God really did say. He really did say. He has said in His Word who He is and who He is for me and what He has done." So, brothers, it's a challenge to you. It's a challenge to myself to daily go to battle in the word, to recognize that we are sitting ducks without the word of God. And so we go to the word, we pour over the word to remind ourselves that Christ is our truth. He is our truth. And when you face temptation, when you begin to speak that truth, to pray that truth, to rehearse that truth, you will begin to find victory because Satan cannot argue. He cannot argue with the truth of God. The last thing, who is Christ to us? How does he help us in the midst of temptation before we go to our tables? Christ is our ultimate. He is our ultimate. Um, Around here, um, we we talk about the Westminster Shorter Catechism some. Some of you have been here forever, and you're like, really, I didn't know that. Um, You know, there's... I would challenge you to read all of it. Uh, we typically don't get past the first question. There's reasons for that, partly because the first question is so good um, and it's easy to remember, right? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were created, the catechism is teaching us, we were created to glorify God, to enjoy him, right? To give him honor, to give him praise. In other words, we're created to worship And you see this throughout the scriptures, that this is what God has appointed us to do, that he has called us, Romans chapter 12, right? To offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, because that is our spiritual act of worship. So it should not surprise us that one of of Satan's greatest devices, how he tempts us, is to not just lie to us, not just accuse us, but to twist our worship. At the heart of every temptation is a war over worship, and not over style of worship. When I say worship, I don't want you to hear music, okay? Typically, we think of worship when we think music. Now, worship is much bigger. It it includes singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs, right? But worship is about posture. It's about recognizing that God has called us to do everything for his glory, whether you are, yes, singing uh, hymns on a Sunday morning, or um, doing work faithfully, as you go from this place on a Tuesday, whatever it is that you were doing, you were called to do it for the glory of God. It is, your whole life is to be a spiritual act of worship. And so Satan goes right after that. That's what he tempts us with. Verse eight, it says again, devil took him high to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So he starts by saying, hey, look at all this great stuff. Right? Be enticed with your eyes. But what I want you to see is it's not a surface level thing. It's deeper than that. He's not just trying to tempt Jesus with his eyes. Look at all this great stuff. Then what does he say? And then he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. At the heart of every temptation, Satan is trying to get our worship off of Jesus and onto something else. He is the one who leads us to idolatry. That's what he tempts us to do. When you think about this in the context of sexual temptation, it's pretty easy to see starting with the eyes, right? Particularly as men being so visually driven. But I want you to see that there's something deeper. There's something deeper at work. He's not just trying to avert our eyes. He's trying to sway our hearts. He's trying to sway our hearts. I want you to think about this, and um, why don't you just write this down for the sake of time. We don't have time to turn there. This is 1 Corinthians 7. There are so many places I could go to um, in the Bible uh, to think about how we combat specifically sexual sin. Um, I'll give you a few others, just uh, for your help. First uh, Corinthians six nine through eleven would be a place I might lead you to. Uh, when you go there, 1 Corinthians six nine, you'll you'll see a whole list of different temptations that we face, whole list of sins. The first of which is sexual morality. But what you begin to see is what Paul says. He says that's who you were. You were, you were a sinner. But that's not who you are anymore. That's who you were. You were a sinner, but now you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of Jesus Christ. You think of combating the lies of Satan with Scripture? Just memorizing 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. That would be a way to combat the lies of the devil. To rehearse that I have been washed, I have been justified, I have been sanctified. That it is no longer who I am, I am in Christ, Right? But another place I might take you is the next chapter over, 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 gives us this vision of what a right view of sexuality might look like, how God intended in the context of marriage. And it is radical. It's radical in that it starts out by saying, look, husbands and wives, you belong to one another. So much so that your body does not even belong to you, it belongs to your spouse. So, yes, that means that all sex outside of marriage, adultery or otherwise, even sex before marriage, is not right and good because God has created sex for marriage, for a husband and wife, right, to serve one another radically, to lay their lives down for one another. That's the vision that the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7 gives, this radical view of sex within marriage, husband and wife belonging to one another. But then Paul goes further, and this is what I want you to catch this morning. First Corinthians 7, verse 6. He says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now what is he saying? He's just talked about sex between husband and wife. And then he says, Look, this this part, look, everything I just told you is a command. Sex belongs in the context of marriage for a wife and a husband to belong to one another. So much so that their bodies don't even belong to themselves. But now I'm going to stop. This isn't a command. This part is a concession. But I really want you to hear me, Paul says. I wish you were like me. What does he mean by that? Was Paul married? No. Paul was single. In other words, Paul Paul's elevating singleness. He's elevating not being married. And if sex belongs to marriage, what does that mean he's elevating? Not having sex. Hey, how can you do that, Paul? And then you realize wait a minute, was Jesus married? No. Was Jeremiah married? No. Wait a minute. The world, the devil tells me that in order to be a fulfilled human being, I have to become, um, I have to understand my sexuality. That's what the world tells me. That's That's what the devil's lies are telling the world. That I have to understand my sexuality, embrace my sexuality, and express my sexuality. And here Paul is saying, hey, that's not who you are. That's not what's ultimate. That's not what's ultimate. If it is, then Jesus must not be a full human being. He must not have ever really experienced the fullness of what it means to be human. But he is. He's the ultimate human being. Apostle Paul says, I wish you were all like me, but I, I recognize you're not going to be. And so God gives gifts, the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. So as you begin to wrestle with, whether you're single or married this morning, what I want you to realize is sex is not the ultimate, though it's a good gift from God. Within the context of marriage, marriage, though it is a wonderful thing to desire, is not even the ultimate. What is ultimate is Christ. Christ is our ultimate. At the heart of every temptation, that's what Satan is trying to do to take Jesus off the throne, to make him no longer ultimate. So, what do we do? What do we do? We put Jesus in his place we learn what it means to worship God. If you want to do battle against temptation, become a worshiper. It's why corporate worship on Sunday morning, I believe, is so important. So if this is your church home, Park City's Presbyterian Church, this is why you need to participate on Sunday mornings in corporate worship. We are doing no less than warring against the temptation of the devil. We are fixing our eyes on Jesus and saying he is ultimate over every other thing, even the good gifts of God. He is ultimate. We need to learn to become worshipers on Sunday mornings. If you have a different church, by all means, please make that your real church home and worship there. If you do not have a church home, please join us. Join us this Sunday, 9.30, 11, 8 a.m. We'd love to have you. Sunday morning corporate worship is so important, but beyond Sunday morning, we need to learn to become worshipers as men, to learn what it looks like each and every day to worship. For some of you, maybe that's singing hymns. Some of you can't carry a tune. Maybe for some of you, it's more of a posture of putting yourself in a position where you worship God and him alone. All right, I've said too much. I've gone too long. What do we do with this? Well, what I want you to do at your tables now More than focus on, although it's good and right for us to begin to expose these things, rather than focus on um, our failures, I want you to focus on the hope that we have in Christ. We all have failures. We need to talk about those failures as men. For some of you, your tables are intimate enough where you can do that. Others of you, you're not, and you're not ready to go there. That's okay. You need to do it with somebody. Somebody. Need it with somebody. If you do not have someone in your life that you can talk about these things with, we want to offer that to you. We have a great group that meets on Monday nights. Uh, we'd love to tell you more about it—a way that you can begin to work with other people to recognize you are not alone in your temptation, you are not alone in your sin. And so, if you're interested in that, uh, talking about redemption groups, our sexual brokenness group—you can talk to me or Pat Hoban. Would love to tell you more about the way that you can get involved with that. But we don't want to stop there. The worst kind of accountability is that we just tell each other sin and stop there and say, well, you better do better. (laughs) Where I want you to go this morning and when I want you to leave is the hope and the help that we have in Jesus. We confess our sins to one another in order to remind ourselves that Christ has paid it all for our sin. And not only has he paid it all for our sin, but he is our help even in the midst of temptation. And so I want you to leave knowing that you have victory in Jesus. Victory as you rehearse the truths of Jesus, as you worship Jesus, and you recognize you have worth and value, that your identity is in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you and send you to your way. Lord, these are weighty things, sobering things. Uh, For some of us this morning, We wish we didn't come this morning. Uh, Man, this is hard stuff to talk about, but Lord, it's good. And as I prayed for this morning, um, we know that Satan hates this as we are exposing things into the light, as we are claiming the worth and dignity and value that we have in Jesus, as we are rehearsing the truths of the scripture. And yes, even as we talk, we pray that as we meet in our tables now, that it would be no less than worship, that this would be a worshipful, a fragrant offering of praise to you as we discuss these things, that we would do battle. Help us to see that the great warrior Jesus Christ has gone before us on the battle lines, that he's already won. He has already given us victory. And so, Lord, we pray that we would follow our champion, our warrior, the one who has given us his very armor, and help us help us to withstand the schemes of the devil, help us to resist him. Father, be our help. And Son, be our help. We thank you, Lord Christ, for the helper of Holy Spirit. May we be helped this morning and today and the days to come. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.